Uh, let me pray and, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that is in it. Father, we thank you of the, the beauty of knowing Jesus as a friend, as a savior, as Lord. Father, I pray for anyone this morning that does not know Jesus, that today would be their day of salvation. And if they do know Jesus, that today would be a day of refreshment in the knowledge of the gospel. And so, Father, I pray these things in your name, knowing your name is above all other names. Amen. Every Christian should live a God-guided life. This is a famous quote from Eric Liddell, a famous Scotsman, I want to get that in nice and early, a famous Scotsman who was an Olympian in the 1920s and then became a missionary to China. It's fair to say that Eric Liddell lived a God-guided life. You see, in 1924 at the Paris Olympics, he was guided by God to withdraw from the 100-meter race and the heats on the run-up to that because it occurred on a Sunday. Instead of running, he went to church and he preached the gospel. It was God that guided him later on to run in the 400-meter race because that happened during the week. Everyone thought he was crazy because he had given up his opportunity for a gold medal. But Eric stayed resolutely God-guided. He ran that 400-meter race and he won gold. It was God who guided Eric to give up that running career and head to China as a missionary. Between the years of 1925 and 1945, Eric Liddell served the Lord by preaching the gospel to the people of China. During these years, there was much unrest, much warring around the nation, and he suffered much ill health. Yet through it all, Eric remained resolutely God-guided. In fact, in 1943, Eric found himself interred in a prisoner of war camp where he spent two years suffering at the hands of his captors and many days of ill health. Just five months before that prisoner of war camp was liberated, Eric Liddell died. Years later, many survivors of that prisoner of war camp wrote books of their time and their experience. Over 20 books have been written just from that prisoner of war camp. In every single book, there is one common denominator, Uncle Eric, the man who loved Jesus and told others about Jesus. What led Eric Liddell to live a God-guided life? It was his gospel faith. It was his faith in the risen Lord Jesus that guided him in no matter what circumstance that he faced to live for Christ. Let me ask you a question today. Do you live a God-guided life? When you consider your actions of this very week, would you say they are God-guided in nature? If trial and hardship came your way, would you be able to sustain those trials in a gospel faith? You see, a gospel faith is what we need to live a God-guided life. It was a gospel faith that spurred Stephen in Acts 7 to preach the gospel before a crowd that hated every word that he was preaching. 
It was a gospel faith that gave Paul the boldness to share the good news of Jesus with the imperial guard in Philippians 1. It was a gospel faith that took the woman at the well and sent her into a community to share the name of Jesus. And it was a gospel faith that brought assurance to the likes of Timothy and Titus when they faced challenges in the local church. A gospel faith is the foundation to a God-guided life. The purpose of me preaching our passage today is that you would know this gospel faith that I talk about and that in every circumstance, it would guide you to live as God would seek you to live. You see, gospel faith is not just a feeling or a belief. It is an active transformation that impacts what you think, what you do, and what you say because it transforms your very heart. With gospel faith, you are no longer guided by desires and passions. Instead, your foundation is God. Our passage today is found in a very short letter in the New Testament in Philemon, specifically looking at verses four through seven. Paul writes to Philemon, a pastor of a small home church, and he mainly writes to discuss Onesimus and his usefulness to Paul's ministry. However, before he gets to those matters, he notes his thankfulness for Philemon's life and ministry. And it's in these verses I want to show you a gospel faith that leads to a God-guided life. From our passage, I'm hoping to show you three attributes of a gospel faith. If you're going to live a God-guided life, then you're going to need to know what fuels that life. Faith in this world won't do it. Faith in yourself simply won't cut it. Only gospel faith will lead to God-guided living. And that's why we're going to consider three attributes of a gospel faith. And I promise you today, and I can sincerely say this, that when you realize the beauty and the splendor of what it means to be a friend of the friend of sinners, your life will be forever changed. Your life will be God-guided because the gospel will transform you. So we're going to jump into the first of our three attributes of a gospel faith. Here it is. A gospel faith is one of conviction. A gospel faith is one of conviction. This is verses four and five. Read them with me. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Uh, to help us a little bit here, I'm going to break this down into two crucial elements. And, he, and here's the first crucial element you'll see. The gospel is about Jesus. I think you were hoping for something more from chapel uh, than the gospel is, is about Jesus. I hope you know this today if you're here. If you don't, maybe your theology class might be a bit of a struggle this semester. But it's common for Paul to note that he's thankful for things in his letters. In verse five, Paul is specifically thankful for both the love and the faith that Philemon displays. Now the order seems somewhat muddled here, but what Paul is getting at is pretty clear. Paul has heard of Philemon's faith toward the Lord Jesus, which has been evidenced in his love towards both Christ and the saints. And I want you to notice the order here. Look down again with me. Notice the focus of the faith. It is toward Jesus before it is toward others. 
It is his gospel faith that is the foundation to the love of the saints. Now, the use of the word toward here is really important. It comes from a, a Greek preposition signifying the direction you are facing. You see, Philemon's faith was directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Philemon was known as a man that faced toward Jesus, that looked at his Lord and Savior in the face. He knew what it was to see the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that paves way for wicked sinners to have a relationship with their heavenly Father. He knew that after confessing and repenting sin, he would be wonderfully forgiven and brought into that relationship, never to be separated from God again. And so he knew that his faith must be faced toward Jesus Christ because it is the only person that would captivate his soul. Uh, to describe this, I remember at one of my girl's birthdays, uh, we went to a high ropes course. And if anyone knows me knows I do not like heights. Uh, not my favorite thing to do, but when you're a dad of three girls, you don't want to disappoint them, so you go anyway. Now, most of the course was pretty safe, a little scary at times, but just generally fun. Yet right at the end, there was a particular uh, kind of section of this high ropes course that they did something pretty unexpected, at least unexpected for me. Uh, they took away the ropes. And for someone that's scared of heights, the ropes were the only thing that was holding me at safety, and they took them away. And suddenly I stood, and I saw the finish line, and between me and the finish line was a 20-foot precipice. And I just knew, I'm falling. Uh, so I just closed my eyes and got across this thin little metal wire that they gave us. I breathed a sigh of relief. I was at the end. But like all dads do, hopefully, they turn around to make sure their girls are okay. And there stood one of my girls, absolutely terrified, shaking, screaming, she couldn't do it. And I shouted over to her, look at me and just walk. She took a step, just look at me and walk. As she walked across this thin little metal line, I just kept saying, look at me. Don't look down, look at me. And with great cheers, she got to the other side and we have never gone back to that ropes course ever again. <laughs> Friends, this is what Jesus is declaring. Look at me. It is the facing toward Jesus, the looking toward him, the, the trusting him when you find salvation from that great precipice of sin. Let me ask you this morning, where are you looking? Are you looking toward that completed degree for your salvation? Are you looking towards others to guide your life. I think even worse, are you looking to yourself to somehow muster up a better life? If that is you today, how's that going for you? Have you noticed that you have zero assurance and zero security? All it takes is one bad grade, one mistake, one bad piece of advice, and you're completely crumbling under the pressure. Let me tell you this morning, looking at anything or anyone else other than Jesus will guarantee your fall into the precipice of sin. So bluntly put, get your eyes off the fall and place them on Jesus. It is when you face toward him that you secure your God-guided life. The second element I want you to see in these two verses is that the gospel is central to the church. The gospel is central to the church. And notice back in verse 5, look down with me, that Paul is thankful for Philemon's love for the saints, end of the verse there. 
Philemon's relationship with Jesus was poured out in the care for others, specifically those in the church. As he looked toward Jesus, he could not help but consider others. What he received in Christ, he felt compelled to pass on to others. What drove Philemon to love his church? Simply put, his gospel faith. It was Philemon's conviction that Jesus is the most wonderful treasure that drove him to share that with others. Our motivation to love others is our conviction that Jesus no longer calls us strangers. And in fact, in John's gospel, we read that he calls us friends when we are welcomed in his family. And I hope you get that this morning, that if you're in Christ, the very Son of God is your friend. You are part of the family of God and you sit at the table where Jesus sits. You sit by his side as a co-heir to his throne. If you face toward Jesus, you have a friend that will never leave you and will never forsake you. He knows every one of your daily struggles, yet he still puts his arm around you and leads you to his heavenly father because he will intercede for you. And when you experience this type of friendship, You just can't help but share it with others. Philemon is reminding the saints, the church of this truth, the ones that already know who Jesus is. And so let me remind you today, as Paul did to Philemon, you are not the sum of your sin. You're not valued by your grades. Your degree and your job will not secure your future. All these things are temporary, That is why we must turn to face Jesus. Because when we face toward Jesus, we are children of God. We are co-heirs to the throne. We are friends with the Son of God. God doesn't look at you and see your sin. He looks at you and sees the blood of Jesus washing and cleansing you. It is our Lord Jesus Christ that brings everlasting assurance that we can be welcomed in heavenly realms by our creator. So friends, if you don't get it yet in this sermon, and I hope you get it by the end, but let me be clear, gospel transforms how you are seen, how you live today, and how you will be in eternity. And that is why we must look to Jesus because he is our guarantee of a God-guided life. So we've seen that a gospel faith is one of conviction. Let us now consider our second attribute of a gospel faith. Here it is. A gospel faith is one of confession. A gospel faith is one of confession. This is verse six. Read that verse with me now. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may be become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. In verse six, note two distinctives here I want you to see. The first is that the gospel is to be shared. It is to be shared. Look at the first half here of verse six. Notice that Paul now speaks to Philemon and of him sharing faith. Now, there is some debate as to what he actually means here. Uh, Note, I did not get the Biblical Studies Award, so I I move into this with trepidation. Uh, But some have suggested that he's speaking of Philemon and Paul having some kind of form of mutual faith that will increase their fellowship together. Others have suggested that he's speaking in context of the coming verses, that Philemon is to share, and therefore this faith will lead him to share. 
Personally, I think the simple read of the text is a good way to understand this verse. That the gospel faith that Philemon has, that's been established in earlier verses, should be shared. In writing the sharing of your faith in verse 6, Paul hints that Philemon is already sharing and that he is sharing a personal faith. He is confessing before others the conviction that the gospel is all about Jesus and is central to the church. He proclaims Jesus as written in John 14, 6, the way and the truth and the life. We are reminded of this promise in Matthew 10, 32. So whoever anyone acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Philemon is declaring the gospel and therefore will be acknowledged before the Father. And the gospel is to be spoken as a confession. As believers in Christ, we are to confess the gospel to others. I love how Ray Ortland puts the gospel. He says this, God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, rescues all his people from the wrath of God into the peace with God with a promise of the full restoration of his created order forever. Friends, this is what we must confess. This is what we must share to others. You don't have wisdom outside of this, friends. This is what we have to share. This is what we have to confess. And the weight of verse six is to do that, to share that faith. But why should we share it? Look at the second distinctive here, that the gospel brings knowledge. The gospel brings knowledge. Paul prays that Philemon's sharing of his faith would be effective, specifically that it would bring knowledge of all the goodness. What is the goodness he speaks about? Well, the sharing of one's faith will lead others to know who Jesus is and what he has done for them and lead them into salvation in the arms of Christ. This is the conversation Philemon is to share, the confession of the gospel message. And when you consider this week your conversations, what have they been centered around? Recently on campus, Uh, I've shared many a conversation with individuals about the introduction of a new drink at the Tomlinson Cafe. Uh, You might have spotted it. It's bright orange, and it's a drink called Iron Brew, and it's produced only in Scotland. So you can tell why I'm quite proud of the introduction of this drink. As a Scotsman, uh, hats off to Levi. He took the advice, and he starts selling in the Tomlinson Cafe. Wonderful Scottish bright orange soda. Uh, For several weeks, I've been getting messages from people telling me whether they like it or they don't like it. Uh, For those that don't like it, I just ignore those messages. I've had people taking pictures of themselves drinking this drink. Uh, Jared and I have mentioned it on the For the Church podcast. I went to the TGC conference and people were coming up to me asking where they could find this iron brew that we've been talking about. My conversations somehow ended up being around iron brew. It was a central topic for several weeks. And I've got to be honest, I'm more than happy to have those conversations because it leads me to remember Scotland and remind everyone here why it's the greatest country in the world. Um, I will never preach here again. I'm aware of this. But friends, get this. I have a great joy in sharing about Scotland and the, the bright orange soda, but it pales in comparison to the joy of sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ. When you've experienced the joy, transformation comes to your life. This loving sacrifice that that Christ has provided for you changes and transforms how you think about everything. Sure, iron brew is good, never as good as the gospel. 
Replace it with anything in your life. Whatever you hold dear, whatever you like talking about, the gospel will always pale uh, as a better discussion. Uh, Let me ask you, what are you evangelizing others over? Does knowing Jesus and finding salvation in him ever actually come into your conversations? The beauty of the gospel is that it is for everyone. Yet remember Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That is fundamentally what you are here to learn to do at Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College, to know Jesus and to share Jesus to a lost world, to proclaim the gospel within the church and in society. Think about it just for a second. Uh, Think about what we're going to do after this chapel service. I wonder, are you planning to go and confess Jesus to someone? Just imagine at uh, 11.05, because I'm going to give myself an extra five minutes for preaching this sermon, but imagine 11.05, that joke just bombed, I realize that. Uh, Just imagine uh, after this chapel, instead of all rushing to the cafeteria, we instead went to Freddy's or Wendy's or Sam's Club, right across the road from this seminary, and each chose somebody to share the gospel with. Now, they'd be terrified because there's probably about 40 people sharing the gospel with one individual. But I hope you're getting the point. Just imagine if we decided that we wouldn't do our normal routine, that instead we would share the gospel. I wonder, have we maybe grown too comfortable and too complacent in our Christian bubble? So we've now seen that the gospel faith is one of conviction and it's one of confession. Let us now consider our third attribute of our gospel faith. Here it is. A gospel faith is one of comfort. A gospel faith is one of comfort. This is verse seven. Read with verse seven with me. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. In our final verse, I want you to see two encouragements of this gospel faith. The first is that gospel is joyous. The gospel is joyous. Paul is thankful for the impact that Philemon's faith has had on others. And notice in the first half, look with me at verse seven, first half, that Paul is joyous. Why? Second half of the verse, the saints have been refreshed by Philemon's gospel faith. When we consider people in our society, have you ever noticed that they tend to be out for themselves? Have you ever noticed at the local grocery store or at work, people tend to put themselves first in line? How do you feel after spending some time with a selfish person? To coin a phrase that Alistair Begg likes to use, you feel pretty rotten. So Philemon must be behaving in a different way for people to be refreshed by him. When Peter proclaimed the good news in Acts chapter 3 from verse 19, he said this, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Refreshment comes when we repent from our sins and we draw near to Jesus. Philemon brought refreshment to his church when he leads them to Jesus. Philemon led them to Jesus who will bring freedom from their slavery to sin. 
And who can blame Paul for being overjoyed by this? The saints have met Jesus and have been refreshed by him. And so what makes Philemon so different to note this? What helps his church towards refreshment? The gospel faith of Philemon. Uh, Over recent years, Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College has enjoyed significant increase in both attendance and number of students graduating. Uh, Through my role in advising, I hear the same reason over and over and over again as to why students come here to study. They come for three words. I wonder, do you know them? For the church. You know what you're getting when you come here. You know what you're going to see at this institution. You know we're going to train men and women in biblical studies so that they can be for the church. A resolute belief in being for the church means that the local church are refreshed by the men and women that leave this institute because they bring the gospel to wherever they go. Just like Philemon, we believe here at Midwestern Seminary that we should bring joy, not burden, to the kingdom. And that is why we train men and women to bring refreshment through the gospel for the church. Let me ask you today, when people talk to you, do they know what they're going to get? Do people find joy in gospel faith in you? Do you talk about Jesus in such a way that people are just refreshed by the conversation? If I took a snapshot of your conversations this week, would I hear the beauty of the gospel or the disdain of gossip? The blessing of salvation or the curse of sin? The grumbling of someone frustrated or the message of hope from one that is saved? Philemon was someone who refreshed and brought joy. And so the believers in Christ knew Jesus and the freshness of the gospel. And so that leads me to the second thing I want you to see in verse seven, that the gospel is comforting. The gospel is comforting. Look back again at verse seven and see that Paul has found both joy and comfort from Philemon. Paul is encouraged by how Philemon cares for the people in his church and how he's pointing them to Jesus. And in leading them to gospel faith, Philemon is leading them to hope, to assurance, to salvation, to peace, Philemon is leading them to transformed lives. But I want you to get this, that it's not Paul that transforms them. It's not Philemon that transforms them. It is Jesus that transforms them. It's the comfort to know that Jesus will take us in our sinful, wretched way and transform us into the bride of Christ. To know that being fully God and fully man, he came to this earth that he was born of the Virgin Mary and lived a sinless life. And he did that so that he could be a perfect sacrifice for us, the perfect lamb of God, that he would pave way in his death on that cross, taking every one of our sins and taking that suffering we deserve, that he would pave way to a right relationship with God, that he would die that death, that he would be buried in that tomb, that he would rise three days later to call triumph over sin and death so that when we repent from our sins, that we would have that relationship with God and that we would be comforted in the knowledge of why Jesus did it for us, that he did those actions to bring us close to our Father. The resurrected Lord Jesus calls us to repent from our sins, not because the law states it, 
but because Jesus has paid the punishment, paid the price, and the gift of relationship with the Father is yours now for the taking. It is a comfort to know this, is it not? It's truly refreshing to then act upon this call to repent. It's why Philemon led his people to Jesus. It's why this seminary leads people to Jesus. It's why I'm preaching today. We know the comfort that is Jesus Christ taking our sins and washing us clean. Many years ago, I experienced what Jared Wilson calls a gospel wakefulness moment. I had known Jesus for several years and had followed him all the way into ministry. Yet the early years of my ministry were a complete mess. I focused on myself. I wanted a job title. I wanted to make a name for myself. And if I had to step on a few church members to do that, then I would do it. Ironically, the more I pushed for the position, the worse in the role I became. Through a series of bad decisions, I found myself outside of ministry, unemployed, nothing to my name apart from what we had in the home. I was broken and a complete mess. I had done everything wrong. I knew it and God knew it. I would spend nights crying, thinking, is this it? In my early 20s, is this it? Am I one of those statistics that went in, crashed and burned and then left? Every day was a struggle just to get through. And then there was one conversation that changed everything. One evening in floods of tears, my wife said to me, Jesus loves you. That's enough. You don't need the title. You don't need the job. Jesus is enough. Friends, do you know the greatest comfort I have ever experienced was that message? To know that Jesus loves me. Slowly but surely, God picked me up off the ground and showed me that the love of Jesus will sustain me and will carry me. By God's grace, I continued to serve him through several years in the UK and now we're here in Kansas City serving this institute. What made the difference in my life at that moment? What took a broken failure of a man and changed him into a peaceful servant? What changed was the recognition of a gospel faith because that gospel faith then guided my life and changed all decision processes. I wonder, do you know Jesus in this way today? Is your life guided by the knowledge that Jesus loves you? Or are you still chasing an accolade or prestige or the right grade and somehow that will secure you? I can speak from personal experience. The comfort of knowing Jesus is truly refreshing. It completely transforms your life. So from our passage today, we have seen that a gospel faith is one of conviction that a gospel faith is one of confession and a gospel faith is one of comfort. As we have considered Philemon's gospel faith, have you found yourself a little bit despondent this morning? Maybe you've trusted Jesus, but as you survey your life, you've realized that you're not really living a God-guided life. Your faith is shallow and you're discouraged by the lack of transformation that you have seen. You want gospel faith, but it just seems unattainable. 
You might sit in a different camp where you have no idea of the gospel faith that I'm talking about today. You're studying at Spurgeon College, but maybe not because you're a Christian, but because your parents sent you here. Maybe you have found yourself at seminary, filling your mind with knowledge, but you've never experienced a heart transformation. If these are you, I want to remind you of two characters in Scripture. If you're in the first camp and you're feeling despondent this morning, let me tell you about Peter in John 21. Peter spent much of his time with Jesus flip-flopping from being hot and cold. His faith at times was rocky, and one of the worst moments in his life, he denies Jesus three times. His faith at that moment was shallow, and he was left despondent. Yet in John 21, Jesus takes him aside and has a brief conversation with him. The conversation focuses entirely on whether Peter loves Jesus. In just a few short questions, Jesus takes Peter's eyes off his faltering faith and back onto his Savior. You see, when we are despondent, we take our eyes off Jesus. Don't do that. Peter is restored when he fully gazes on Jesus. Friends, don't look away. When you look away, that's where the mistakes happen. That's where the pang of guilt comes. That's when the mess comes back to your life. So look right at Jesus. Look at how he loves you and is willing to renew you. He will deepen your faith and bring transformation that you desire. When you're tempted to look down just as my daughter was as she crossed that little silver line of metal, when you're tempted to look at that precipice, you lift your eyes up and you look at Jesus who says, just look at me, just come to me. Because when you pick up your eyes, what you're gonna see is not a savior that damns you, but a savior with open arms who says, I love you, keep walking to me. If you've never known Jesus, the second character I want to remind you of is a woman at the well in John 4. She was a mess. It's just true, she was. She had hoped for a good life in her marriage, but had gone through several marriages with no success. She had hoped for satisfaction in her people, but being a Samaritan, she was hated by others. When she met Jesus, she was skeptical. Yet it took just one conversation with Jesus for that to change. Just one conversation with someone who would show her that rather than hatred, there was love available. One conversation with someone who had nothing from this world to give, but everything in eternity to offer. Very similar to Peter, wasn't it? Just one conversation with Jesus would transform. And in that one conversation, she was led to the gospel, to the trust of Jesus and salvation in him. You might be like the woman at the well today, stuck in your sin, just trying to find a solution. Today, without a single doubt, I can tell you the solution will always be Jesus. It will always be faith in him. So bring your decision to him today to know a wonderful freedom from sin, from guilt, from shame. To come to him and have a personal relationship with him will bring the gospel faith and transformation I've been talking about. Now, growing up, I had a drunk for a father. He spent many years dealing with his demons through alcohol. By the time I was born, his alcoholism had taken hold of his body and had led to multiple heart attacks. As a young child, I only knew a sick father, sick and obsessed with alcohol, sick in his broken body, sick in his broken mind. When I was 13 years old, 
alcoholism finally caught up with him and he died from multiple organ failure. It was horrendous for any child to watch and to experience. It is something I've sought to ensure that my girls will never experience in my household. And that would be a pretty horrendous story to finish on. But five years before my father died, he met Jesus. With conviction, he confessed Jesus as Lord. He found comfort in his Savior's arms and gave up alcohol. He spent his final years loving his family and loving others and sharing Jesus. You see, his story does not end in worldly emptiness. It continues in eternity with Jesus because he placed his faith in him and lived a God-guided life. So friends, what are you waiting for? How bad does it have to get for you to come to Jesus? If you're a believer and your faith is feeling shallow and stale, look to Jesus. Be renewed and refreshed by his love for you. Deepen your faith, yes, in knowledge, but equally as you stare in the face of Jesus. If you're not a believer in Christ, wait no longer. The world has nothing to offer you, but Jesus has everything to give. Find forgiveness for your sin as you repent before him. Be set free from guilt. Friends, in Christ you will never be guilty again. Know Jesus as a personal friend. My prayer is that each one of you will have a gospel faith that will lead to a God-guided life. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share um, your gospel with those here at Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College. Father, may we confess before others the beauty, the stunning reality that Jesus loves us. Father, we pray that it would be evident in our lives. And Father, we know that you have called us to pray before you that if we are lacking in these things, that you would be faithful to provide them. So Father, if there's friends in this room who are lacking faith, give them faith, Father. If they're lacking joy, give them joy, Father. If they're lacking to know how to live a God-guided life, give them wisdom and let them walk in your ways. Father, you are indeed a wonderful Father with a precious Son, and we praise you for it. In your name, amen.